deal. Matthew chapter 15 this evening. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave and they'll get one into your hands and you can follow along tonight. And then if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you this evening. Chapter 15, and then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, very significant even the first verse of chapter 15, because Jesus is in the northern section of Israel, the Galilee, which was the headquarters of his public ministry. He went to Jerusalem occasionally, and he certainly went there to die on the cross for our sins and uh, to be resurrected from the dead. But these men make a considerable journey as religious leaders, and uh, they were, well, they were prima donnas. I mean, they had everything kind of their way. They were the heroes of the culture, and they were used to comfort and all. And so it was a big deal for them to leave Jerusalem to go all the way into the north of Galilee and to track Jesus down in what was a very, very rural ministry for the most part. And so they come now. And as we're going to see in verse 2, they come not to learn more about Jesus or not in order to, uh, you know, grow in their understanding of Him as the Messiah or anything like that. They're coming purposely to try and find a fault in Him. Now, in the world that we live in, uh, if you've ever been around people that are determined to find a fault with anything, you take them to Disneyland and the churro wasn't perfect or something. You, know, you just say, okay, I want my $65 back and put this guy out of the park. He can't be thankful for anything. But if you want to find fault in this world or in any human being, it's effortless to do so. It's a fallen world. But you will have a big problem trying to find a fault in Jesus, and that's what they're attempting to do. They're trying to find a reason for which to reject him as the Messiah and as the Son of God that he claimed himself to be. Now, finding a fault with Jesus, that's a problem. Jesus, in John chapter 6, spoke to the Jewish religious leaders, and he said, "'Which of you convicts me of sin?' Which of you can throw one sin in my face after three and a half years of public ministry, one false teaching, one snapping at someone or yelling at someone or, or whatever it might be? And he asked them, which of you convicts me of sin? We're not told how long Jesus allowed that silence to linger. They would have given their right arm to break the silence, but they couldn't. Only Jesus could break the silence to that question, and he did by posing another question, and that is, then why don't you believe the things that I tell you? It's interesting, you know, I live in the same world that you live in, and I live in it as a Christian like most of you, perhaps all of you on a Sunday evening, and um, 
you know, people want to find fault with, you know, Christi- you know, Christian churches or Christianity as it's expressed within the culture. A lot of times they'll try and find fault with the law of Moses simply because they don't understand the law of Moses. So they want to talk about, yeah, God, the God of the Bible. You want to go back to not eating certain shellfish and not mixing, fab- you know, fabrics for clothing and all of this. And they, they poo-poo all of it and they make fun of it because they don't understand the purpose of the law. And we can get caught up in some of these, in a defense of God, the God of the Bible, of the Scriptures so often, and we can get caught up in it on their terms where we begin to deal with these kind of issues. The greatest thing that we can do in dealing with uh, speaking about Christianity and a reason for faith in Christ and becoming a Christian, etc., in a culture that's moved now into secularism, is to point them to Christ. Uh, give them a Bible and ask them, turn to the Gospels and begin to read those Gospels. Come back to me when you're done and see if you can find a fault with Jesus. That's the issue. It all hinges upon Him. So they're in a fruitless kind of search. Everyone is who tries to find a fault in Jesus. And, uh, and, but this is what they've come to do. Well, they can't find a fault in Jesus, and so they're going to find a fault in His disciples. But you notice as we get to verse 2, and we will get to verse 2, but when we get to verse 2 here, they can't even find a fault in the disciples in terms of a violation of God's commandments. They're going to find a fault in them concerning the traditions of the Jewish elders. So they confront Jesus, and because this, it's not about the disciples, it's about Jesus. So they're going to, you know, try and uh, stumble him. And they ask, why do your disciples transgress the traditions of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread? And so the disciples are not violating the law of Moses. They are violating a tradition that the Jewish elders had come up with, a tradition that they had attached to the law and the prophets. This was not being observed by the disciples, and so they find fault with them. The Jewish religious leaders and the Pharisees were notorious for this. They had a lot of these traditions that got attached to the law of Moses. And the one that they're talking about here is that there came a point in their history where before they would eat, uh, they would uh, go, you know, the table's over here, and they've got a wash basin here with a pitcher, and they would put their hands up like this, and somebody would pour water on their hands, and the water would drip off at the wrist. They wasn't allowed to go up their uh, forearm. And then they would put their hands down like this, and then they would pour water on the top this way, and the water would go off of their fingertips. And the idea was, here they are as a holy people living in a Gentile world or an unholy world, and they've become ceremonially unclean by mixing in with ungodly people. So before they partake of food, this is the ceremonial washing that they're going to do. Not talking about personal hygiene. It's good to wash your hands. Um, uh, I remember one time watching a TV show where they have all these specials and everything, and it'll cure you of ever... um, uh, ever, you, sometimes you go to a restaurant and they've got like an open bowl of mints that aren't individually wrapped or toothpicks or something. Never take one. 
Never take one of those. They come in with a light and they show you. Not everyone washes their hands in the restroom. You know that by experience. And so it's a good thing to wash our hands, but this is what he's talking about as a ceremonial uh, uncleanness, and this is the confrontation that they're making, uh, you know, against Jesus here, that he is, that they are violating the traditions. They established this tradition, like they did all of the traditions, or most of them anyway, with the idea of trying to remind themselves of something, something about God, something spiritual. In this case, it was the idea of when they came in, and each time before they eat, they were to eat, it was a reminder that they lived in a world that was filled with spiritual defilement. And before they partook of their bread, so on a regular basis every day, there was that reminder not to allow the world or the things of the world to attach to them. So it's kind of a neat idea in terms of a tradition and, and the idea that they were aiming at, but it was a misguided way of doing that. What most traditions do is that they are trying to take the place of the Holy Spirit in the child of God. So here is this tradition that they make in order to remind themselves that they're pilgrims in the world, that they're spiritual people to stay separated from the world. But God has determined to produce that within our lives as Christians by the Holy Spirit. There's no need to do these things. The Holy Spirit prompts us in every situation that we're in and reminds us that don't do this, don't say this, yes, jump in there on this. He's the one that he is the Holy Spirit, and he's the one who is responsible for the holiness of our life and leading us into that. We don't need the tradition. So anytime you see traditions very often within a denomination or within a group of people, it is most often when that group identifies with Christianity, they have a low view of the Holy Spirit. And they have a low understanding of the Holy Spirit or a mistrust of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit will do this. We don't have to add traditions or our own laws to God's commandments in order to accomplish that. One of the problems, and I, I talked a little bit about it at the very end of the men's conference and praying yesterday, I am so concerned today for the body of Christ in the United States of America in this area of the Holy Spirit. I don't know what it's going to translate into in my life, probably a series on the Holy Spirit somewhere along the line. But the Holy Spirit's being replaced within very popular, uh, the people that are the most kind of charismatic, they have the voice, they're the models of Christianity and Christian ministry and all, and there's this constant drumbeat today that, you know, the success of the church or any church is going to happen on the basis of the charisma of the leader or this certain atmosphere that you're going to produce. And, and then there's so many. We are, I remember when I was a new Christian, part of what Calvary Chapel and the Jesus movement that was larger than Calvary Chapel was a pushback against, was a pushback against program-oriented churches where the program dominated the church and the Holy Spirit didn't have any kind of a room to move. And it was a pushback on that. That's why the Holy Spirit was so significant to the Jesus movement. And today, 
what I see, what I read, the, the trends, the blogs, the different things that come my way, people send my way, I just see one program after another, one analysis by another man of how to fight the postmodern uh, culture or the post-Christian culture within the United States of America, and almost nobody's talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who does these things, and if we do not trust in the Holy Spirit, what He's able to do, what He has come to do, then we will resort to these other things, because we will resort to something. But it's the Holy Spirit that does these things. One of the problems with traditions, and their traditions then turned into legalism, among the Jews not only 2,000 years ago, but to this day, in the Mishnah, it declares that you are not allowed to elevate even the law of Moses above the teaching of the rabbis. Now, that's crazy. All teaching of any teacher or any rabbi is to be tested by the Word of God. You don't flip that upside down, or you're going to have chaos. But that's the view, was the traditions are the main thing, and the law of Moses and the Word of God, it's secondary. One of the problems with legalism, which is what this is a part of, is when you get legalistic minds involved in this trend, is that they will, if they feel like they've got to produce holiness within the body of Christ, conviction, separation, rather than leaving that to the Holy Spirit to do that, then the, the worse the culture gets around us, then the more rules they're going to add. And one of the things about a legalistic person is that they will then add this rule and this rule and this thou shalt not and this thou shalt and so forth and so forth until all of our time is, kept, is taken up by keeping the rules. And we don't have any time left for a relationship with God. And he's going to address that in just a moment. In vain they worship, uh, he talks, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They had no relationship with him, but a tremendous relationship with a set of rules. And so this is what they come and they're confronting Jesus on. And it's significant because it's all around us, sometimes in subtler forms, but it's all around us. And Jesus has an answer for it. And Jesus is very strong here. He didn't call everybody hypocrite, but he does here. There's something he really doesn't like about this. So he answered, and he said to them, Why do you transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? Now he gets it turned right back around. You never transgress the Word of God. You never elevate anything above the Word of God as a revelation of the will of God and of God Himself. And yet it's as if Jesus had never said that, where they had elevated the traditions and elevated uh, the teachings of, uh, of man and the commandments of man, of man above the Word of God. And so why do you transgress the commandments of God because of your tradition? And then he gives them an example of, when, of how they had done that. For God commanded, saying, honor your father and your mother. He quotes Exodus chapter 20. That's right there in the law of Moses and in the Ten Commandments. He then goes on and quotes elsewhere from the Old Testament, he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. That's what the law of Moses said. And part of honor your father and your mother was not only did you not sass him at the dinner table, uh, no matter what age you were, or you might find yourself out on the edge of town uh, 
There is something worse than a spanking or a wooden spoon, and in the, it's there in the Old Testament. So you just learn that God would… In the Old Testament, people look and say, oh, look at this, stone and the whole thing like that and all, and I know we're under the new covenant, but I can see the wisdom of it. What would you rather have? A couple of kids that end up getting stoned for… Uh, dishonoring their parent and it sets the tone for the entire city of 400,000? Or would you like to lose that generation and every generation after it in terms of respect for their parents and then the loss of the family unit? You live in the world that has chosen the wrong path in terms of severity in order to maintain something that is valuable. And so, this is what it said in the Old Testament, and the idea was not only would you not put up with back talk from, from your children, they would respect you, they were raised that way, but the whole culture raised them in that way. But it also meant that when they got older or they got infirmed, that if they had a physical need, a monetary need, that they could come to you, and as their children, you would be responsible then to help them with dealing with a, a tooth that is broken or a medical situation or whatever it might be that they, you know, the harvest was down and here they don't have any food. It was part of respecting your parents that you took care of them in uh, their old age. And, and that was the expectation. I mean, they wiped our mouths when we were babies. Sometimes we end up wiping their mouths a little bit later in life. But that's how the whole thing was to work. That was the command of God. But then... Jesus said, but you say. So here you've got a command of God, and they came up with a tradition to violate this command. Whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother, and thus you've made the commandment of God, which is the supreme thing, of no effect by your tradition. So this was known as the Corban, Corban. And what would happen is, here you've got these, you know, uh, sassy young people, uh, maybe, and uh, being younger than their parents, whatever that age might be, mom and dad is going to come to them. They know, wow, we're going to have to take care of them in their old age and so forth. And maybe enough people got tired of doing that. And so they talked to the religious leaders, man, how can we get around this commandment? It's as clear as a bell in the law of Moses. And they came up with the rule of Korban. The, the religious leaders did this. And the idea was, all right, let's do this. You can dedicate all of your money to God and then hold on to it for your own purposes. And then when your parents come and they need a little bit of help, you can say, oh, I'd love to help you, but I've already dedicated all of my money to God. And so it's not mine to give. And in that technicality, which is no technicality at all, then mom and dad are sent away empty-handed. Well, this, this is a circumventing of one of the Ten Commandments in the law. And this is what they did. I don't know what kind of pressure came on them where they didn't want to take care of their parents or enough people came to them to put pressure on them, but that's what they established. And they made the commandment of God of no effect by their tradition. And then Jesus called them hypocrites. You phonies. Now, they didn't come from Jerusalem to hear that. 
And there's a crowd around, by the way, when he says this. He calls them hypocrites, actors. You come all looking like this and everything, but behind, behind what you give with your appearance, with all your robes and all your stuff, uh, it, what your heart is like and your mind is like is nothing like how you present yourself. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near me with their mouth. They know all of the religious words. They honor me with their lips. They know how to say all that stuff. But in their heart, and this is the issue, in their heart. Jesus came to provide us with a heart relationship with God. That's what's important to God. Not religious performance, not pretending that I'm this, but a relationship. But in their heart, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me. Why? Teaching the, uh, as do, uh, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, the elevation of tradition and the commandments of men above the Word of God. And so Jesus, boy, he really, uh, really lets him have it here, and he confronts them. And here they are trying to find a sin in him, and he confronts them with their own sin. Well, there's a crowd around. And uh, Jesus takes the opportunity now to instruct the multitude as a result of all of this. Again, um, you would have to probably be in the middle of that scene and watch that crowd. I'd love a picture of it, so if, you know, if it ever digs up somewhere, um, a picture of the expression of, on the faces of those people when Jesus called the scribes and the Pharisees hypocrites. I mean, nobody talked to these people like this. And Jesus is going to explain to them. He's already talked to the religious leaders. Now he's going to make it a teachable moment for the multitudes. He called them to himself, and he said to them, Now listen, hear, and understand. Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but it's what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a man. And then the disciples, they came. Jesus makes that pronouncement to the crowd. And they came to Jesus, and they said to him, this is apparently privately, and he said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) We're so afraid to offend today. I'm going to talk about a little bit later, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. We won't get there tonight, so relax. But the PC community, in the culture, we don't even realize how much we've accepted it within the church and the utter nonsense that we put up with that claims to represent Christ and doesn't. Now, you've got the tares and the wheat, and it's not my business to tear out the tares and all, but it's my business to teach the Word of God. But Jesus said, beware of that. And so, don't you know that you've offended these people? Well. I don't care who you are, you speak the truth and you stand for God, and you're going to offend some group of people. That's just the way that it is. You can't make everybody happy. And Jesus told that, uh, us that too. And then he answered and he said to them, now listen, in terms of your being worried about what the Pharisees think about you, every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Gentlemen, there are things that you ought to be concerned about in life, and then there are things that you shouldn't be concerned about in life. And offending the Pharisees by making a stand for the Word of God is a thing that you should not be worried about. Don't worry about that. 
Let them alone. They're blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind leads the blind, then both of them will fall in a ditch. And so legalism has within itself, it sows the seed for its own destruction. It's not going to go anywhere. Everybody's going to fall in a ditch as a result of it. So he says, you don't have to go in and fix that. I've dealt with it. I've talked about it. But you don't have to make that your life project. It will self-destruct on its own because it doesn't have a place in, in God. And Peter answered and he said to him, now explain this parable to us about, you know, what goes into the mouth, not what goes into the mouth of a man defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, that defiles a man. That's what they're wanting an explanation for. Explain this parable to us. And so Jesus said, are you still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? It goes through the body, and it goes into the sewer, and it, it just goes right through you. So what I eat, it's good hygiene to wash my hands before I eat, but what I eat, and whether I eat with hands that are washed or not, has no effect upon me spiritually. That's the point. They were making it spiritual and not an issue of hygiene. So nothing that we eat or we don't eat makes us more spiritual uh, before God. Why? Because what we eat just has a physical impact upon our bodies, and then it does, it does what it's supposed to do, and then on it goes, and the whole cycle continues. So, it, it, you know, what you eat is, is not a major issue in life in terms of your standing before God or how God sees you. I can't tell you how many fish sticks I ate on Friday growing up. Tom, do you remember? Yes, all right. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man." In other words, he's saying uh, to them and to us, you know, pay more attention. Uh, don't, don't pay attention to whether you're eating with washed hands or the traditions of man. What you want, in terms of spirituality, what you want to you know, you make the focus of, of your life, if you really want to please God, then make the focus of your life not what goes into your mouth, but, but co- what comes out of your mouth. That's the main issue, not what goes into it. And so that's the test. And then we realize that's right. What comes out of my mouth is in my heart. It's a part of my character. It's a part of who I am. And so it reflects upon, uh, it's, a, it's a revelation of who I am. Uh, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the uh, heart, the mouth speaks. If I ever want to take like uh, my spiritual temperature, it's just to stop during a day and listen to what comes out of my mouth. I have a friend named Larry Anderson, and he was involved in Calvary Chapel of Napa, Karen and I, and Jerry, is, his wife, is still alive, Calvary Chapel feeling, and, and uh, Larry's in heaven now. But one day, he was a pastor, 
at Calvary Napa, and one day he, you know, he's just, he'd have one of those recorders he put in his pocket to remind him, you know, as he was kind of a pastor, okay, we need to clean this up, and we need to make sure under those bulletins of this and all that kind of stuff. He put it in his pocket, and then he didn't, he didn't turn it off. And at the end, toward the end of the day, or at some point in time, he realized it was still running, and he went back and listened to it. He didn't like what he heard. And he realized, man, I got to, he wasn't saying anything foul or anything like that, but he's missing an opportunity to impact for the kingdom, which is what his life was all about, to talk about what, you know. And so it's a good thing when wrath or anger or slander or something comes out of my mouth and I look at that and I go, wow, that, where did that come from? Come from my heart. And to say, Lord, that's in me right now. That's how I feel. That's how I see things right now. And so I want to talk that over with you right now because I realize not what I'm eating is significant and doesn't affect my relationship with you, but what I allow in my heart and to stay in my heart, that does affect the relationship. And because it does that and affects other people, I want that to be right. And so Jesus said, listen, you want to be concerned about being right with God and blessing Him and representing Him well, don't worry about what goes into your mouth. Uh, give much greater consideration to what comes out of your mouth. And it's a good thing uh, to realize in our, uh, in our lives. And then Jesus went out from there, and He departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And this is um, the... Uh, this is Gentile territory. It's what's modern-day Lebanon to the north of Israel. And it's the only record that we have in the Bible of Jesus leaving uh, the land of Israel proper is this, uh, you know, time in his ministry. So he departed there from that uh, area of the Galilee, went into the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, and I'm inclined to believe that he was going there in order to just get some peace and quiet, he is at, uh, when we get a little bit later to Caesarea Philippi, who do men say that I am? That's the hinge of Jesus' ministry. Things start to get, uh, moves from his year of popularity into the year of opposition, and things start to march quickly towards the cross. So people start, he goes from being uh, popular now, and everybody's plotting his death after that. But he's in a, and he's a peak time of popularity here. He's trying to get time probably alone with the disciples and all. Let's go into Gentile territory, and I'll wear a ball cap and, uh, you know, wear it down over my eyes, and then maybe nobody will see us and we can get some peace and quiet. But he goes into the region, and behold, a woman of Canaan, a Gentile woman, came from that region. She finds out that he's there. Pretty tough to keep him a secret, which is great. And she cried out to him, saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. So here's this Gentile woman, and, and, the, and the reason that this is in this chapter, in chapter 15 with everything else, is she's a complete, she's just a Gentile, she's a Canaanite. I mean, she's as far away in the eyes of the scribes and the Pharisees from the Jews as you could ever be. He can't get the scribes and the Pharisees or the Sadducees to call him uh, the son of David to save their lives or anybody's life. He goes into Gentile territory 
where they hardly know anything about him, and this Gentile woman gives him the honor that he's due, recognizes him to be the Messiah of the Jewish people. Wow! And what drove her to Jesus? Desperation. Desperation. How many people come to Jesus out of desperation? It's a good reason. Any reason's a good reason. And she cries out to Jesus, my daughter is severely demon-possessed. Maybe someday if I live long enough, I'm going to make that a Mother's Day message. What a mother. What a mother. If you're a child, you want a mother like that. If you're a child that's demon-possessed, you want a mother like that. I'm not, I'm not, this, I'm not trying to do, oh, well, oh, I'm not a mother like that. I'm not trying to say, I'm saying, this, she's something. And when you, if you're a child who is severely demon-possessed, you want a mother like that. This is a special lady, though a Gentile. And so she comes in the desperation. And can you imagine having a daughter that is not just demon-possessed, but severely, severely demon-possessed? I remember before I became a Christian, they had that movie. You know that movie. I remember I was in playing basketball in junior college, and one of the guys on the team was a friend. He was reading the book that became the movie, and uh, he said he read the book, and he were on a were on a road trip to another city to play some games, and uh, he slept all night with a light on. Nineteen years old, <laughs> scared him to death. Is worse than any movie. Worse than any movie. Put yourself in her place. Your child is severely demon-possessed. Where are you going to take that problem? And so any problem that's less than that, wow, as parents taking them to Jesus, if Jesus can take care of this thing, he can take care of anything. And so she comes to Jesus and then notice Jesus' response. But he answered her not a word. He ignored her. Now, he knows what he's going to do here, but he ignores her, and there's a reason for his ignoring of her here. But she comes, and she lays this request out, and uh, Jesus takes and ignores her in this, in her desperation. And I think that the reason that Jesus ignored her initially here is that as we look at the Old Testament, we realize that Jesus came into the world, yes, to provide salvation for all of mankind for both the Jews and for the Gentiles alike. But before broadening his ministry as the Messiah out into the Gentile world, as was going to happen supremely by the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, his initial focus of his ministry was to give the Jews the first opportunity to accept him as their Messiah. In the land of Israel, Jesus had freely ministered to both Jew and Gentile while in Israel, the land of Israel proper when they attended his teaching. But now he's in Gentile territory. He didn't want to give the impression that he had come to Tyre and Sidon because he was abandoning Israel. And so if he started to do great miracles in the Gentile area, there was a real danger 
that it would be misunderstood by the Jews, that they would conclude that he wasn't their Messiah, that Jewish religious leaders were already looking for an excuse. The Old Testament scriptures had prophesied that the Messiah would have a concern for the Gentile world, but that his primary focus would be upon the nation of Israel. And because that was the priority of the Old Testament, Jesus is even in this scene eager to protect that priority as his credential for being the Messiah based upon the Old Testament Scriptures. Well, she's not going to take silence. This is a gal that looks and says, okay, I haven't heard a no yet. (laughs) If I got silence, it'd be like, okay, all right, okay, what are you going to do? I tried. And that's why the passage is in the Bible, to talk to people like me, because there are people like me in this room. I know I'm not the only one. All right, I gave it a shot. Sorry about that. He gave me the cold shoulder. She's not taking that. And so his disciples, she does, he doesn't answer her. His disciples came and urged him. So you can imagine this conversation. Send her away. She cries out after us. I mean, it's just a, a nuisance to us. So she just keeps on pleading with him for this. But he answered and he said to her, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And this is what he's communicating here. That's the priority of my ministry at this time. And then she came and she worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. And you picture her, probably on her knees right there. Lord, help me. And she cries out uh, to him once again. And then he answered and he said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Now, sometimes, you know, when you read it, especially when you read this for the first time, and it looks like he's calling her and all the Gentiles dogs. The Jews, the Jewish religious leaders, considered all Gentiles to be dogs, to be wild dogs. And the word that is used for wild dogs or untamed dogs uh, in the Greek language is not the word that Jesus uses here. There, were, there was a word for a cur, these packs of dogs that were dangerous and running around. But he uses the word here that speaks of a little puppy, a little puppy that's in the household. And so he said it's not good to take the children's bread or the food there and throw it uh, to the little dogs. And so the picture is you've got a family that it's at the dinner table, so to speak, the way that they eat and all, and it would be completely inappropriate for someone to walk in, pull the plate out from in front of the child, and then uh, set it before the household, you know, puppy and let it eat. I mean, everybody would be horrified. And, and so she, this is what he's, he's saying to her. It wouldn't be right, you know, to do this and to, to take what is for the Jewish nation, the Jewish people, and then give it to the Gentiles in this way. And then she responds, I'll tell you, sometimes you've got to have a little sass in you. I mean, sanctified. She is something. And so she said, yes, Lord, but even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And you, know, you all know that's true, don't you? If you've ever been in a house where they have inside dogs and it's dinner time, and, they, and especially if the dogs haven't been trained to be in another room, where are those dogs? Oh, 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 oh. They are there. They, are, they got Marty Feldman eyes. They are watching. And even if you don't intend to drop anything, they can catch it before it hits the ground. It's like 30 inches. What's the height of a 
kitchen table, you know, or dining room table to the floor. They'll catch it before it hits the ground. And, and that's the hunger. You know, and, and the whole idea is that she's saying is that, you know, sometimes little dogs have a greater appreciation for the food that is in front of the children than the children have. And you've seen that too, haven't you? Where you tell the kids, quit moving it around on your plate, eat it. There's people that are starving in wherever that is today. And uh, you let them know that, and they're shifting and all of that. And the dog is sitting there and will eat anything that would be given to it. And one has an appreciation. There should be appreciation here. There isn't, but there's appreciation here. And it was a picture between the nation of Israel. Jesus was there doing all of these miracles, all of this teaching, all of this amazing spiritual feast that he was giving to them day in and day out, and they sniffed at it by and large. Certainly the religious establishment did. And she's saying, I'm just a little Gentile dog. I'll take a crumb of what they disdain. I'm not asking for the miracles that you've done for them. Do all of the miracles and more for them. I'm not asking you to take anything away from them to bless me. Do you have a miracle for me? And Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And he marvels at her faith that she would not let go until she had received here the uh, request that she had for her daughter, and her daughter was healed that very hour. And Mark's gospel, I believe it is, tells us that when she went home, she discovered that the, the child was delivered of the demon and what God had done. And it teaches us an important lesson here. And there are several passages like this in the gospels that speak to the importance of perseverance in prayer. I don't understand everything about faith, and I don't understand everything about prayer, and I don't understand everything about how prayer and faith operate. I just know that in the Bible, over and over again, Jesus does these things that commends to us the importance of perseverance in faith. Why? Because of a woman who came to me at the back door this morning who is in the middle of a tremendous crisis within her family. And she has prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, not for months, not for years, not for a decade, but for decades. And no answer to the prayer that she sees. And she was completely honest when she said, I don't know that prayer may, I don't know what difference, if prayer is making any difference in this situation at all. And if you've never been in a situation where you have felt that, you're a better person than I am. And I don't doubt that. But those situations that you pray into for so long and nothing changes in the importance of perseverance in that prayer. 
I think when I think about prayer as it relates to my life and the mystery of all of it and all, I think about, uh, before I get there, let me, uh, you know, when we look at the prayer, uh, the Psalms of David, we see it over and over again, and that's one of the reasons the Psalms are such an encouragement to us. Wake up! Hear my prayer! God, listen to me! They're going to kill me. This is the end of the rope. There's so many people that are rising up against me at this time. Can't you see? I mean, the emotion of David and his prayers. I mean, it's all of the anxiety, all of the desperation that we feel too. But then you see in the Psalms that desperation, the prayer then continues, and then if it doesn't translate into an answer to prayer, it translates into an impartation of faith in the person's life because now even when prayer isn't at its highest, I'm crying out to God in desperation. I'm crying out to God, and by virtue of that, now I'm beginning to see my problem in the light of God and the perspective of God, and now I'm seeing how big he is and, and how small my problem is in comparison, or smaller. And so that perspective changes there, and prayer does that. Prayer changes things as they say, and the first thing that it changes is us. So it's important. And for me, when I look at things as just kind of a rule of thumb on prayer, I, I look at it and I, and I pray for the situation until I either hear a no or God releases me from it. And until I hear a no from him on the situation, or he releases me by his Holy Spirit, gives me a peace to leave it in his hands, that's enough. It's, it's fine, now leave it with me. Then perseverance in prayer is very, very important. What a word it is, I'll tell you, because it's just so easy to give up, and it's so easy to feel it's not making a difference. But it is. And if we can't see it yet, in the situation, it's at least making a difference in us as we pray for the person. And no situation is the same immediately after prayer as it was before. Whether I can see it with the naked eye or not, it's the truth. And that's a great encouragement to prayer as well. And Jesus departed from there, and he skirted the Sea of Galilee. Some of you have been to Israel, and so you remember when we went to, we would go to the city of uh, Gadara there, where the demoniac was, and everybody runs up to the cave on the top there. It's in that section, the area of the Decapolis on the uh, southeast side of, of the Sea of Galilee. And so he's still in Gentile territory, and he uh, uh, came there, went up on a mountain, and he sat down. And then, not just the multitude, great multitudes came to him. They heard that he was there. They were coming. Now, imagine, imagine you have a son or a daughter or an uncle or a neighbor or a friend, and they got a, they're blind or they can't hear, or they got leprosy, or they've got a leg that's been palsied all their life. I mean, you just, and here comes this, this, this massive wave of people coming and need coming toward Jesus and the disciples, and this great multitude came to him, having with them the lame, the blind, the maimed, the mute, and many others, and they laid them down at Jesus' feet, one after the other, and he healed them. Now, this is the Gentiles. He's doing the same thing now for them. And so the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel." 
And they gave glory to the God of Israel in a way that, again, the religious community in Israel was not giving glory to God for the ministry of, uh, of Jesus. This beautiful scene of God ministering to them in their thankfulness and understanding what this means. This is a gift from God to us. Now, Jesus called his disciples to himself. And he said, I have compassion on the multitude because they've now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. It's interesting. I was reading this in the New Living Translation. And, um, and the idea is, is that they haven't been with him three days um, without any food for three days. But they came with some food, and now they've used it all up. But they've been with him a total of three days. And getting back to wherever they're going, Jesus has a concern for them. They're hungry. He doesn't want them to faint or, you know, just their strength to fail them. They've they got to get home. And Jesus understands that. It's a physical body that needs to be fed. And then his disciples said to him, where could we get an, enough bread in the wilderness to f uh, fill such a multitude? Ah! <laughs> Anybody home? How long ago did he feed the 5,000 with the five loaves and the two fish? And they've forgotten it. It's like they're right back to square one, like he'd never done the miracle, was never a part of their history. It's interesting when you read the Bible scholars, and some of them anyway, on this passage, they look at it, and if you do any study on those two miracles in the Gospels, you'll inevitably run into some teachers who'll say, well, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, they were, they were the same miracle. It's just one writer bringing it this way and the other doing this kind of a number. And the reason that they do that is that it is inconceivable to them that the disciples could be present at the one miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, and forget it and ask this question at the feeding of the 4,000. I look at that and I say, you're basing your scholarship on that? I can't tell you how many times in my life I have run into the same situation all over again that God has delivered me from, taken me through, and now I face it all over again in my life some months later, and it's like we've never been here before. I know it's not true of you, but it's true of me. We forget. And so that's the part of the lesson here. Don't explain away the passage. The idea is when we face these impossible circumstances in life to try and remember, have we ever been here before with God, and do we have anything to worry about? And most of the time, we have been. And our past history with God is intended to be an encouragement to what we're facing today. You say, ah, everybody knows that. You ever, I, I've sat under 20 different preachers in my lifetime, and they all say that. Everybody knows that that knows anything about the Bible. That's great. It's good to know that. But what about the situation in your heart tonight that has you freaked out? And you and I are acting like we have no history with God, like he's never delivered us before, 
that he's smaller than our circumstance and that we're going to sink in the middle of this mess. And that's one of the reasons for repetition within the Bible is that we forget and we need to be reminded. Not theologically, it's in the noggin. We know the point of the passage, many of us do. The key is to stop and apply it to what I'm in the middle of tonight and let it have application to my life and encourage me that even the disciples fell prey to this in the same way that we do, and to just stop and remember our history. We've been here before, most likely, and what God was then, he will be to me in this situation as well. So it's intended to remind us because we need to be reminded because when you're younger, but it gets worse when you get older, this is not a mind, it's a forgettery. And so they said, where are we going to get all of this bread in the wilderness to fill such a multitude? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few little fish. And so he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. Again, Jesus does things decently and in order. He took the seven loaves and the fish, and he gave thanks, and he broke them, and he gave them to the disciples, and then the disciples then gave them to the multitude. It's all identical to the other miracle in, 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 in terms of the form of, of how the, it was multiplied and then given. And so they all ate. They were all filled, just like before, and they took up seven. Remember, last time it was 12 uh, baskets left over, seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left. Now, in the original language, one of the reasons, the evidences for the fact that this is a second miracle of the feeding of the 4,000, that it's different from the feeding of the 5,000, is the Greek word that's used for basket here. There is a, a word that was used for the baskets that the Jews used. And so when Jesus performed this miracle on Jewish territory, he's in Gentile territory now, the word that was used for baskets there spoke about the baskets that the Jews used. The baskets that the Jews used were baskets that had came up and then they closed to kind of a narrow opening. They weren't wide open, flat baskets. Again, the concern for ceremonial cleanness within the culture, a small opening in order for keeping things pure and keeping things clean. The word that's used for baskets here is the word that describes the baskets that Gentiles use, just these flat baskets that they, almost like mats with a slight curl on the end that all of everything would be placed uh, upon it. So again, this recognition of the fact this is a Gentile crowd, it is a second and a different miracle. Now those who ate uh, and uh, now those who ate were 4,000 men besides the women and the children, and then he sent them away the multitude, got into the boat, and then he came uh, to the region of Magdala. And so we'll stop there tonight, and we'll pick up in chapter 16, Lord willing, next week. Let's have the worship team come forward. And I'm going to just ask them to sing, lead us in one worship song before we... Uh, close up in prayer and, and have our final song just to allow the Holy Spirit to put any kind of finishing touches that he might want to upon our hearts. We've seen a lot of beautiful things in the scriptures tonight and uh, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
And so any of these things that apply that I need to appropriate into my life and say, yes, I see it, I got it, I'm going to make it mine, I don't want it just in my noggin, I want it to drop that important 18 inches down into my heart, into my everyday life, and just to allow that to happen as we worship Him uh, now. Samuel? Samuel?